computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to the Intelligent Performance Podcast, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavour and champions of ambition. Today we're delighted to have Gary Furlong and Josh Gordon with us. They're authors of a transformative book, Strategic Negotiation, Building Organisational Excellence. In this episode, Gary and Josh invite us into the world of negotiation, offering a behind-the-scenes look at their most challenging and rewarding experiences in the field. They also take us on a journey through the characteristics that distinguish a proficient negotiator and explore common misconceptions that often lead to missteps in negotiation and mediation. We also delve into the fascinating subject of cultural, national and professional influences on mediation and analyse the circumstances that lead to a successful negotiation. For example, is a 50-50 resolution always the ideal outcome? We also look at the nuances of building organisational excellence through alignment, shedding light on the art of strategic negotiation. This is a really wide-ranging conversation and it's packed with some great insights. So I'm excited to share it with you. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump straight in. I'd love to start really with, you know, both of you. Where did your interest and passion for mediation, negotiation come from? Who would like to go first? Well, for me, it I'm from a large family, six, five siblings that I have. And I, I think when I think back, I was always the one being second oldest that kind of ended up being in the peacemaker role. But that was pretty young and pretty un, pretty unconscious. Professionally, what I found was as a consultant working in in a lot of organizational development, kind of helping organizations, the issue wasn't the change that they wanted to make. The issue was how people dealt with it and how the organization and people talked to one another to either get them on board or get nothing but resistance. And so as I practiced that after about five or eight years, I realized what I really wanna do is help people solve those problems. They can deal with the content, although I've learned a great deal of content along the way in many areas, which is fun, but they are the content experts. And I really found I had a passion for helping people solve those problems and work more effectively together. That's great. Wonderful. Uh, How about you, Josh? Yeah, a little bit similar to Gary in that I came from a big family. I was the youngest of six. Right. And we had plenty conflict in our sandbox to play with. And a lot of ways, you think about police officers and you look at where their backgrounds come from. Many of them came from a a background where they were probably encountering the police too much. And then they decided to flip sides. (laughs) I think I was kind of the same way. I I had a lot of conflict around me and allowed me to figure out that this was a really important space for us to navigate the world. And when I had an opportunity when I was at the University of Massachusetts to work with some of the real founders of dispute resolution early on, I just immersed myself fully in that. So I've just 30 years now as a mediator. And it's been just a core of just about everything I do professionally. And for me, it's core capability for almost anyone to have. And so I really love being able to help others develop that capability as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. It kind of reminds me very, very different. I don't want to throw in the same bucket as this, Josh, but it reminds me of gang members who, you know, are involved in gangs for many years. And then just for whatever reason, at one point, they just think, I want to help this. They see the downside of it. So I can hear that in your experience. Um, And, you know, it's very noble of you to could try and make a difference and contribute from your your experience. So that's great. Well, I'd love to know, you know, you guys have hugely experienced in this in this world. Maybe you could just share with us, have you got any, you know, what are the most challenging and or maybe the most rewarding? No, I'll, I'll start with challenging. What are the kind of most challenging negotiations, mediations you've been involved in? Maybe you can share. And obviously I appreciate there might be some kind of a privacy 
and uh, things you can't share, but maybe you could just share with us to get us into your world a little bit. Yeah. Josh, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think one of the hardest areas that I ever dealt with when it came to dispute resolution is where it's really not about money at all. And so there's a whole series of conflicts where it's about something far more profound in those individuals' lives, something about their identity, something about core values that they have. You mentioned gangs before. One of the areas I used to do dispute resolution was we would drive around in a van in Boston, Massachusetts and do street conflict. Right. We would go and we'd work with gangs. We had a conflict intervention team out of the governor's office where we'd go into schools that had been shut down because of gang violence. Those were really profoundly hard conflicts. They they almost mirrored some of the dynamics we see in the Middle East, where wow. they're so entrenched in the identity of being at odds with each other that we have to figure out how can we actually find some, some common ground and how can we start to open up communication that really hasn't been there and, and create where there's an audience that cements them in that fight, place to do that. But at the same time, the hardest ones are the most rewarding. Mm -hmm. If you could take folks that have spent 10 years at odds and with all kinds of collateral damage along the way, and then get them to a point where they are actually having effective communication and finding that they have a lot more in common than they imagine. That's a pretty pretty profoundly powerful place to be. The, the ones that you think are more complicated, the, the hundreds of millions of dollars, 300 stakeholder disputes that Gary and I have both been involved in along the way, those are actually easier. There's yeah. rationality to them in their own way that we can work through. But the really low dollar value ones are the ones that I find particularly complex, but also quite quite transformative if you can get in them. Pretty interesting what yeah. you said there. Just, sorry, just, if I just make a comment on what Josh is, just I thought something interesting you said was about identity being wrapped up in the conflict. Yeah. Like I can hear what you're saying in as much as if you got two gangs, they're just their whole identity, their whole purpose really has life occurs to them is that they are at war with the other gang. And if they actually solve that that war, then they've what are they going to do? So I can I can see the challenge. It kind of reminds me of, but also actually what you said about bringing themselves out of that world, because it reminds me of listening to a doctor talk about drug addicts. And he, used to, he talked about how he used to have drug addicts come into his clinic and they had like needles kind of in, lodged in their arm and he cleaned them up and he sent them off. And this guy kept coming back in with the same issue. And he said, look, the only way you're ever going to deal with this if you just don't go back to the same people, don't go back to the same situation. And I wonder if you, do you, do you find that in conflict resolution as well? Like maybe the gangs are one example, but maybe similar groups, you know, do they have to just start changing the people they spend time with? And that can resolve it in itself. Yeah. I mean, it can be a shift in, you know, like you say, changing the people you hang around with. That's certainly, you know, one option, but it goes, as Josh was saying, it goes deeper than that. Right. So these identity values type conflicts are very, very personal. When it gets extremely personal, it's hard to climb out of that. But the interesting dynamic is every relationship we have in life is a mixture of common interests, things, common values, common interests, common goals, and competing values, competing interests, competing goals. We have that in every relationship in our entire lives. The real question you have to ask yourself and that we often ask people is, which of those do you want to focus on? Which of those is going to give you what you really want in life? And at this moment, what you really want is to harm that other party because they, you perceive they've harmed you. But do you want your whole life to be about that? And once you start shifting them and get people to see there's a huge amount of commonality in all of this, that we are actually doing the same thing, maybe opposite sides of the same coin. 
But no matter how thin the piece of paper is, it always has two sides. And once we start to see that we're actually that one piece of paper, that's where the rewarding part comes in. People start to shift quite dramatically when they start to refocus towards some commonality, some common values, some common goals, some common things they want. That's even more powerful than the identity differences that uh, that people experience. And I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I think about it, would that work both ways? So the identity that's been so strong in maintaining the conflict, equally, once you start getting commonalities, can equally be as strong to heal it because suddenly they realize, actually, this can be a new identity for me where we're actually the peacemakers or something like that. Does it work that way too? Very much. That's right. you're referencing those those people who come out of gangs. They could just walk away and say, I'm free of it. Yeah. I'm free. I can do anything. What do they do? They turn around because their identity is still bound into some of that world, but now from a completely different orientation. And that's to go back into and risk your life, quite honestly, in that in many cases, to go back and be a peacemaker, it's an even more powerful identity. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Just, yeah. If you, think, yeah, yeah, if you think about it, Alex, one, one of the things that's really powerful at this core skill set that underlies dispute resolution negotiation is that it's self-determination in a lot of ways, not entirely, but you have a degree of agency over what outcomes you're working towards by engaging in this process. And rather than all the alternatives where someone might actually make your argument and then wait for someone else to tell you what the outcome is, right? And this is in any context. It could be the types of really rugged context we're talking about around gangs, but it also is in corporate America and government and everywhere else, that if you actually have the ability to have your voice have input, that's an incredibly powerful place to be, as opposed to just making your argument into the abyss and, and seeing what outcomes come from positions of authority or power. And so a lot of what we're talking about is, in fact, embracing some of those identities around yeah, I do. I do have some control. I do have impact or I am a, a person who's got some ability to change the world around me. But now you have a skill set to do that in a way that is compatible with the others that you're trying to to get to, to walk lockstep with you. It kind of reminds me, it makes me think of, you know, politicians or celebrities who maybe once they've finished their career in whatever made them famous, they go on to maybe some kind of altruistic work often, you know, getting involved with causes and just using their voice. I've also, I guess, they've got people who are willing to listen to them. They've got the audience. And so it, they've got a platform, a natural platform. Is that, what you're, is that what you're kind of talking about, Josh, or have I got the wrong end of the stick there? Well, you know, I think at the end of the day, one of the greatest points of frustration for almost any individual or organization is to feel like they've lost control and to be in a position where you don't have much agency over what's happening around you. And a lot of the work that Gary and I do is actually helping folks find the ways in which they can shape and direct the world that they want to navigate and their experience, and that they don't have to be trapped in this position of being the passive agent, always on the recipient end of others' decisions. That you, you, if you have this skill set around negotiation, can very much work towards helping create some value in this world and, and then figure out where your space is that you want to end up. So tell me, if, if obviously people can employ your services, but what have you found are kind of the the key characteristics that make a good negotiator? From when you you know, I, I guess I'm thinking of people you've worked with, 
and maybe you've obviously started the process, set them in a structure, and then you've left them to it, but you can tell or you've trained them, or maybe they've already had existing characteristics, which are good foundations. So this is going to be a successful negotiation. Have you, have you noticed anything about people you've worked with or you've, you've seen over the years? Yeah, yeah, there's very much uh, some some markers. So probably on an individual level, a couple things that are absolutely critical for being good at this, really sustainable, repeatable success. Number one is the ability to ask questions. And it may sound really simple in a sense, but if you ever sit around and watch people around you have conversations, there are virtually no questions being asked. People tell each other stuff all the time. And we all have very good defenses to not listen to things we don't want to hear. We're all really good at that. So the ability for negotiators to ask questions and to be genuinely curious, to understand where the other party's coming from is what unlocks and opens the door for us to find solutions that work for both of us. Paired with that is really a, a sense of a, a, a little bit of values around wanting this to work for both of us. There are people who approach the world as, I'm here to just get everything for me. I wanna win, it's all about me. Sometimes we call them narcissists. and doesn't mean they're not good negotiators. They're just not good negotiators more than once with any one person. Because once I, you know, the phrase, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right. People. So it's a short-term lousy strategy to be good at this in a long, in a long-term way. So some values around wanting this to make to solve a problem for us both. And third, it'd be structure. And whether that's organization or just an individual having some clarity on what are some of the simple steps we're looking for in this. So it's not just winging it. Winging it, yeah, some people can be successful once in a while winging it, what we call ad hocery from the book. You can do it ad hoc, but it's not repeatable. It's roll of the dice. So having at least a little bit of structure on an individual basis, or more importantly, if you're within an organization, that the organization and the individual, you're in alignment around how this process works, how we do it, so that it leads us to successful outcomes. Right. Any, anything to add for your side, Josh, that you've noticed in your experience? Yeah, I mean, Gary is spot on. If we were to engage you, Alex, and Gary in a negotiation right now, I could mute this video and just watch. And I could watch from body language who is asking more questions. Right. And from that alone, I would already know who's positioning themselves to do quite well in meeting their own interests in this negotiation. And that's because they're listening to what your interests are. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out your why. And that, that happens at an organizational level. That happens at an individual level. But those who are curious about the why behind things go a long way in negotiation because once you unpack that why all the creativity that's required to be an effective negotiator or an effective organization who does negotiation starts to unlock if all you focus on is the what the position you're really in a pretty limited sphere of what you can do and there's an example a classic example if you notice behind me i've got a box of cracker jacks and, and let's say gary and i We'll walk into a store and there's only one box left. Now I had called ahead and I said, these Cracker Jacks, they're, they're critical to me. So I called the store. They said they would put it aside, but they failed to do so. Gary walked in before me. He's got his hands on it. I've got my hands on it now. And we're in this big battle. And our what is the same what? Gary says, these Cracker Jacks are mine. And I say, these Cracker Jacks are mine. Right now we're stuck. Mm -hmm. And all the ways that people want to solve it, divide it in half, have someone else decide for us, battle it out. Maybe we could get in a fight over it. None of these are particularly productive because it doesn't address either of our whys. 
If someone asks a simple question of why, perhaps, and maybe this is too simple, but a lot of our disputes, negotiations end up this way. Perhaps Gary says, look, I've been collecting these prizes in here, and I'm pretty confident the last one in my collection is sitting in that box right there. And for me, I always throw the prizes out. I'm just hungry. I have a real craving for this Cracker Jack. And suddenly, when you know that why, it's pretty clear that there's some pathways for us to move forward in this negotiation. Yeah. Let me give you a practical example, because I do a lot of construction mediation, for example. So I'm on site, and what's happened is the the, the crew has uncovered some ground that they didn't anticipate. It's the wrong kind of soil, so it has to be replaced before they can put anchor the road down. And and so they immediately say, well, I'm not, the owner says, I'm not paying for it. It's a fixed price contract. And the contractor says, this is a change in terms and conditions. You have to pay extra. And they can fight about that. And they do. And they end up a year or two later in court having millions of dollars of damages that they're pointing the fingers at. If somebody on site said to the owner, what's your biggest concern here? And they said, it's going to take, it's going to slow down by a month, the construction of this road, and that's unacceptable. And the contractor says, this is a change. It's going to cost me, you know, $40,000 to replace this. Well, one of them, it's the issue. The main issue is timing. And the other issue, it's money. And it's very common for them, for the owner to say, look, just get it done. I'll pay you the 40000 now, and then we'll look at the geological reports later, and we'll work out maybe something fair, but I'll pay you right now to do it. And they do it. They get it done. The time is saved, limited it to 40000 And then at the end, the, the contractor may say, look, it only costs thirty, and the owner says, look, that's a small price. We got it done on, and it's settled because they had different interests that if they don't, as Josh said, ask each other, someone is listening, driving for that, it's so easy to just lock up and then just fight it to the death. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess, <laughs> I, I don't think my parents would mind me sharing this because I don't think they'll listen to this podcast, <laughs> but you know, it reminds me a bit of their divorce. I've never seen any two people kind of be so irrational about decisions because all they were focused on, I think it was just a lot of anger and resentment and they couldn't really focus on what was actually being discussed in terms of the money and the house and as it, it was split up but if they'd really got into the whys you know what's important to one and what's important because i think they were, that was probably why they, the marriage didn't work they were fundamentally different in what they were interested in but if they got into that i think they could have been a far easier smoother more loving really kind of um resolution to how it got turned out so yeah I, I can hear that but sorry i want to take us back to organizations because i know this is your kind of focus and I, i'm really i'm going to ask you i've asked you there you know what makes a good negotiator and you started to talk about organizations as well and but i'd love to know what do organizations get wrong about negotiation because i think this is what you've really started to focus on i'd love to know more about what you've seen what you found and what you know what you kind of talk and get into it in your book yeah Great question. Josh, want to start? Yeah, very clearly. The traditional approach to negotiation has been that it's an individual skill set. And by and large, organizations have invested a ton of money in training individuals with the idea that if you train individuals, they'll come back, take this newfound knowledge and skill, and it'll magically work out. And then they're dreadfully disappointed that they're not seeing a whole lot of change in any of the indicators, whether it's a sales organization, supply chain procurement, legal, you name it, any of those functions that need negotiation so clearly, they're not seeing much change. And so then they go and look for another trainer. 
must have been a bad training and they go find someone else and they have a new theory and some new words around negotiation and a new vocabulary and the culture keeps shifting and yet nothing particularly changes and it's very frustrating and and from Gary and I's perspective it's really clear that the whole challenge here is there's no alignment between that individual skill set and then all of the infrastructure needed in an organization to support that skill set to enable it to have the ability for it to not to just be an individual capability but for it to be an organizational capability at both those levels when you're firing as an organizational capability and an individual capability now you can move all the way up the chain from being an ad hocery to repeatable to adaptive all the way to an optimized organization where you're not just changing the individual negotiations you're doing, perhaps changing and disrupting the entire industry and space that you're playing in. Give me me an example, Alex. So the most common instruction that an organization gives to a negotiator or a negotiating team is, go get the best deal possible. Mm. What the heck does that mean? And the problem is it doesn't mean anything. So in collective bargaining, you know, they'll say, get the best deal possible. But now we're staring at major labor shortages in North America, and no one anticipated that. And so all the organizations that managed to beat their employees down on wages are now suffering horribly because no one will, no one will go work for them. They forgot the strategy, the values. What's the purpose of this negotiation? They ignored retention and recruitment, for example. So just as one example, supply chain procurement, go get the best price possible. And what happens is some smart organizations who do this well, they partner with key suppliers. They go out and they negotiate and they pay a little bit more per unit, but they have a guaranteed supply. They have innovation with that supplier that drive their costs down because they negotiated from a strategic point of view rather than saying to, you know, go get a better deal. That has literally no meaning. So organizations fail all the time at defining what's our strategy, what's our values, what's the direction we give negotiators, for example. So what I hear you saying, I think there, Gary, is we talked about the why and people listening to each other's whys and getting that. But it sounds like actually organizations aren't clearly defined on their own why to start with. And they send off their negotiators to get the best deal, whatever that means, you know, quotation marks. But actually, it could be, the negotiator might think it's just getting the cheapest deal, whereas yeah. actually for them, it's it should be a reputation. So, so how? And I think you use the word infrastructure as well when you spoke about this, Josh. So, how does an organization create that infrastructure to support its negotiators? Yeah, well, first it starts with having clear strategy, values, and direction, and embracing negotiation as a capability that's part of the overall mission. So, you have to recognize that this ability to navigate and have that ability to shape all of your deals internally and externally are profoundly important to your organization. And it's very hard for me to conceive of an organization that doesn't have that need. Mm -hmm. Just don't know what type of organization can unilaterally navigate the world without seeking cooperation from others in order to be successful. So first you start there, then you start to think about what investments are needed to effectuate those changes. So we, we talk about human capital and organizational investment, what that looks like. And then you start to think about what are the overall organizational incentives that you put together around that? Because you can put all the best words in the world on your mission statements and on your objectives and values and everything else. But if how you incentivize your employees, how you promote, how you pay, if that actually incentivizes behavior that's contrary to that, that's exactly what will happen. And we have to expect that our individual employees are going to do what's best for them. 
but we need to make it so that what's best for them is what's best for the organization. And we also need to hear what are the interests for the individual as well. So it's really about aligning top to bottom what that looks like from an organizational standpoint and then recognizing on the individual standpoint, there are certain folks who are going to thrive in different organizational cultures, making sure we're clear on who would thrive in our culture. Some some organizations find data to be the most persuasive way to operate. Others find a more vision-based persuasion and finding folks that are going to ultimately complement that organization, then building that knowledge and skill out. And then of course, recognizing that individuals have their own interests and we don't want mixed motives to be the, the driver that takes us off the rails. Can you give us some, I'd love to hear some more examples because I can get some various things you're saying. Yeah. Have you got any examples from clients you've worked with that you could demonstrate this through? give you just a simple one that's in real time in Canada today. So on the West Coast in Vancouver, they had a 14-day strike at the at the docks, right? Mm-hmm. The longshoremen went on strike. And they came to a tentative agreement three days ago with the bargaining team for the union and management. Management ratified it, didn't even get to the membership. It went to what's called an executive council, which is about 20 or 30 senior union people who weren't at the table, and they vetoed the deal right there, which tells me the union side had no alignment on what was important to them at the bargaining table to the point where the bargaining team agreed tentatively to a a deal and and endorsed it, and it was shot down even before it was taken to the members. Mm -hmm. They were not in alignment on their own side of the house, and so now they're literally back on strike and I think there's a good chance our government will order them back because they might now be ticked off and they may end up with a worse deal because they were not in alignment. Yeah. Just a a live example of what's happening today. I'll I'll give you another example from from the sports world, right? On the commercial side of sport, you've had this longstanding model around sponsorship where we've got all this product we want to sell, bring in additional revenue. So we'll sell signage, we'll sell, you know, various hospitality things and all that. Yeah, all this. So it's just pure pure revenue generation. The problem with that is it doesn't really connect to any particular mission of the sport organization. It's just about revenue generation and stands around on an island to itself. And so the amount of energy to keep folks sustained in that, it really isn't. So a bank comes in, they spend some money and they don't feel like they got much out of it. So that they go, they're constantly in this persuasion model of trying to convince people to spend money against their own interest around it and individually the incentives for the sales folk around this are get the short-term deal now and and they don't really have any way to look at the long tail of what that's going to be the organizations we work with start to think about this a little differently so rather than thinking about it as a sales cycle think about it as a partnership and your job is actually to understand the why of those folks who would even engage in in acquiring some of those assets that you have so if you're the boston celtics you would start to wonder well, what are the various partnerships that I have and what do they need? So you become a business consultant rather than a sales agent. So you go, okay, that bank, what do they need? They need employee retention. Turns out young people didn't want to work for their financial services place, but they would love to be at a basketball game and be have access to a locker room and all, all those kind of things. So now you start to figure that. So now you have a different strategy around how you're doing it. You have different value sets that you're supporting. And now you find individuals who are on board with that. They're not going there to persuade. They're going to be partners to problem solve and to think about it differently. And so your whole infrastructure has to look different. Your individuals have to approach it differently and you have to incentivize and reward differently. But the output is these very durable, long-term sustained partnerships 
that actually achieve value for your partners. So now they're in it for 10 years, 20 years, not one year, two year, three year. And you generate a whole lot more revenue along the way because of that. Fantastic. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm also just interested, I'm trying to think if I was listening to this podcast and I am, you know, because I guess negotiators, they can take many sort of forms, salespeople, they can be just managers, essentially, yeah. you know, dealing with, so you could be a negotiator, you know, many ways. But if you're in an organization, and maybe you can relate to the experience you described earlier, where you've been tasked with going out to get the best deal by your boss, and then you've come back and you realize what you thought was the best deal is, is not what his he expected or she expected. How, what's the way to help your organization take on input in, in place this infrastructure you guys are describing? What's been the pathway you've seen has been most effective with some of your clients? It's interesting, Alex. It's exactly the same thing we're talking about. So we turn the negotiation process internal, internally and ask those questions of the people who are kind of saying, just go get a good deal. The question is, okay, what actually represents a good deal? Like, how would we know we're going to get we got a good deal? And if we got if we got unit prices down 15% and then they shifted their production to people who are paying more, is that okay with us? Would we would we be happy in a lawsuit with them instead of producing product? What actually could we do that would cement them into us and give us a competitive advantage? And those are questions that people who who are trying to answer them have no choice but to think broader, to think deeper, to think differently about the problem. And that's really the essence of negotiation. It's problem solving. It's not convincing someone against their will. That's how we think of negotiation. It's actually engaging so that both of us are are doing better at the end of it out of getting more of what we wanted. We can do that all day long. That is what the definition of success is. So it works both ways, up the food chain, down the food chain, with partners, with doesn't really matter literally boils down to the same process same with your kids by the way you know anyone... i'm really glad you brought that up i'd love to know if this can be also be applied to other organizations away from the business world can it you know sports gary i'm sorry josh you mentioned but could you give us maybe some examples of how that could look in a sports team but also i'd love to know you as a family like how does a family kind of bring this to to their situation as well i mean just take the basic awful negotiation we all have over what we're going to eat for dinner on any given night <laughs> right Someone wants someone wants to have Mexican food that night. Another person wants pizza. Another, and those are all just what's. Those are all positions, and they're really hard to to navigate. You're, you're talking about a real fusion meal if you're going to pull all that together, and that's not so easy to to cook up and have it be tasty. But if you start to figure out why, well, why someone's why is they don't want heartburn. Another person's why is they're trying to eat a little healthier. Another person has a race in the morning, so they want to have lots of energy and they want something with a little carbohydrate. You start to listen to all that. You go, okay. Now, now here are some good options that satisfy all of that, right? And it, just the act of listening to the why allows us to have a productive conversation around anything. Yeah. Just to put it in in sport, just because you asked that, you know, a good friend of mine has coached his kids in sports. I'm just talking at, you know, you know, peewee hockey, for example. And you, you've got a high performer on the team. And so what does the other team do? They put the two two players on him all the time. So he's not scoring now. And so the coach sits down instead of telling you got to pass, you got to pass, you got to pass. He just simply asks the kid, how many goals have you got? Well, none. Why? They're on me. Right. So what would get them off you? What if you pass the puck more often? The kid goes, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do that because that'll get them off me and then I'll have a chance to score. And suddenly they break the game open 
not because the coach was, you're going to do what I bloody tell you, but because the kid goes, and we're talking 10, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids going, yeah, that makes sense to me. And when you get them on board, right, that's what good negotiations do is people walk away going, I want to do something different because it makes sense to me. And that's back to what Josh said, which is the why. I guess I also hear, guys, what you're saying is buy-in. You, you're creating buy-in amongst all the and let's call them stakeholders, even in family, because they'll call them stakeholders. But yep. you're getting buy-in by finding out what's important to each stakeholder. And then once, but also not just telling them this is what's going to happen. It's like you, they asked the question, I think, in that example you just gave, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, what do you think you can do to, to score? And then almost like that, the kid work it out, then he's bought into his own idea. So, yeah, I love that. Very, It's very powerful. And it works on so many levels because all of us are motivated what we see as our needs, what we want. And if and if I can see a different way to get what I want, I'm going to do that in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. If I'm being ordered to do something, I resist it. Mm -hmm. Almost by definition, I because I don't like being ordered around and most people don't. But if I see a way to get what I want, man, I'm there. That's what good negotiators can do. Well, this is great. And uh, one one question I've got, yes, the Intelligent Performance Podcast, and we're kind of talking about performance in terms of producing results, but I'd love to know from each of your perspectives, what does intelligent performance mean to you, if I asked you that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is exactly at the core of, of what you're talking about when I think of intelligent performance, is we're, we're, not, we're not asking to sacrifice outcomes or sacrifice self-interest. To pursue your own self-interest ruggedly and with zealous, zealous pursuit is exactly what we're talking about. But in order to get there, you have to have a different approach. It's not, this is not an altruistic model where you're just giving away value to everyone else and you yourself are taking it on the chin. You're just a sacrificial lamb. No, in fact, you're going to be performing at the highest level within whatever space you're playing because you can navigate the, a very complex world, right? Very few things are one-on-one. -on -one. They're generally multi-party and complex, but because you're understanding the world and asking the whys and then being able to problem solve, it's really a powerful performance tool. So I, yeah. I always think about performance. I think Gary and I, one of the reasons we connected so deeply is we both talk about just how much impact this has on tangible outputs that you're looking for. It's not a, yes, we also believe that it makes the world better and all these things, but that's not the driver. The driver is looking for that performance tick that this really gets you. Yeah. And I love the word, your podcast, Alex intelligent performance. Yeah. So I can say, look at all the results I got, but were they the right results? Were they intelligent results? Meaning, did they really do what we wanted them to do? And there's this real trap. Humans are very much trapped in this, this idea of what we tend to call loss aversion. So we go into negotiations, unconsciously we say, what do, how do I prevent losing anything? Instead of, what can I gain? by this. And I was just in a media mediating a collective agreement where I was in the union room and they said, look, we gave up this, we gave up that. One of the people was saying this. And, and I said, yeah, you agreed to some of those modifications. I said, but let me ask you as a group, what did you just gain? And they went, oh, well, we got significant capital investment committed to, and we've got job security for this group of people. And we got pretty good increases relative to inflation. And they start going, wow, actually, we're doing really well, <laughs> right? But they hadn't focused on the intelligent part of it. We get sort of caught in, well, have I given anything up? And that's, in a sense, an irrelevant 
question. It's really what intelligently have we accomplished? And if we can keep that focus, that's what good negotiators do. Yeah, that's great. And I, what you just said there takes me back to the beginning of our conversation about this kind of identity we talked about. Because I guess when you focus on the loss, it's very much like ego thing, isn't it? Because it's wrapped up in what I've got and what I haven't got. Whereas if you can just focus on, yeah, what's the intelligent result? What have I actually accomplished or gained? Yeah, it kind of releases you from that that kind of hole. So yeah, I love that. I think this is such a fascinating topic. And I also really reflect that, you know, if we all, if the world got better at these skills and started to listen for these whys, so much would get resolved. You know, the world would just be a better, more enjoyable place to live in. So I really, you know, applaud you guys for what you're contributing to the world through, you know, your work and also your book. And and so your book is called The Strategic Negotiation, Building Organizational Excellence, A Roadmap to Harnessing the Power of Alignment. So yeah, we'll, have, we'll link to that in the show notes and do get yourselves a copy of that if you'd like to learn more about Gary and Josh's work. But uh, both of you, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been really fascinating. Yeah, enjoy the rest of your days. Thanks so much. Thanks. Our pleasure. pleasure. Alex. Thanks.